We are continuing on in our refresh series. This week's sermon is going to be on biblical theology. Last week we looked at the gospel. This week we're looking at biblical theology. You're welcome to open your Bibles. Again, these are topical sermons, not very typical for us as a church. Normally we'd be open to a particular passage and we'd be staring at that. Uh, With a topical sermon, we do a little bit less of that. If you want to follow along and try to flip quickly enough to go to the various Bible passages, you're welcome to, or just pay very close attention and listen to the Word as it's read. For the modern man, the word myth has become synonymous with superstition. When we think about myth, we think about elves and goblins and trolls. Oh my. The modern man hears the word myth and he thinks made-up stories and old dusty books with fairy tales. This has not always been the case. The Greek term mythos, it can certainly refer to a fable or a tale, but can also just refer to a story or a narrative. The heart of all mythology, of course, is the desire for cultures and peoples to transmit their truth down through generations. Now, in our enlightened age, we assume that modern man has no need for myth, that the only people still silly enough to believe in myths are those crazy religious fanatics with their old dusty books. The truth, however, is that every society, every culture, every people has a myth, a story, a grand narrative about who they are, how they came to be, and where they're going. A simplified version of our modern Western myth might go something like this. In the beginning, there was nothing. And then nothing acted on nothing, which became something. The first miracle. Thus were created the heavens and the earth. Then, over the course of billions and billions of years of time, time plus chance acted on inert matter in order to create ever-complexifying strands of protein, which in the witch's cauldron of primordial soup that existed in the young age of the universe, turned into a single-celled organism, which then turned into a salamander, which then turned into a great ape, which then turned into, well, you, me, us. Thus was created mankind. According to this myth, we are uncreated, insignificant, and have no real telos, no purpose. We must therefore create our own sense of purpose in this life as long as we live it. In this modern myth, science is God, and she will bring about our earthly utopia, our heaven, through her guaranteed technological advances, unless, of course, we are all first swallowed up by the massive heat death of the universe. This myth is not written down in any single volume or finely bound book, but make no mistake, my friends, this is, without a doubt, the predominant myth of our age. This is the myth that adults are being taught in colleges all around the world, that they're being taught in every cultural institution in the modern West and beyond. It's ironic that they're trying to tell us that there is no story, even as they tell us this story. Now, why is it, do you think, 
that every society, from the beginning of time to our own present day, takes their own truth claims and then tries to weave them into the form of a story? Why do all people everywhere and at all times try and convert their philosophy into a narrative? Why do we try to answer life's biggest questions by telling a tale? C.S. Lewis once wrestled through the question of myth. Fortunately for him, his grappling partner was none other than J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, the master of myth himself, the author of the much-loved Lord of the Rings series. An expert in myth, if there ever was one, Tolkien helped Lewis to see that the gospel interacts with both the mind and the heart in a way that simple facts cannot, in a way that only myth can. There's something about who we are as human beings, as, as who we're, we were created to be. We just cannot exist merely in the realm of factual. Propositions, data, statistics, those are all good, but for human beings, they're not enough. We must, in order to understand truth at the deepest possible level, go beyond the bare skeletal frame of truth and we must wrap the bones of that skeleton with flesh and blood, with muscle and sinew. We must understand truth in the form of story. C.S. Lewis came to see that we need story because all of life is a story. And when he said all of life, he doesn't mean your life or my life, although your life is a story, as is mine, and these stories are part of the big story. But it's really the big story that C.S. Lewis was talking about all of life, all of the universe is one grand narrative. The story of God and man, sin and righteousness, damsels and dragons and heroes and villains and death and decay and defeat and sin and love and salvation. The reason why we love stories so much in movies, in comic books, novels and history the reason why we always want to hear a story, to tell a story, to craft a story, to be a part of a story, is because we are living in the greatest story ever told. And that is what biblical theology, this morning's sermon, is all about. The greatest story ever told. It's about understanding the truths of the, of the Christian faith, the gospel, as part of God's story. Now, there are two, I'm going to reduce this down, uh, probably it's a bit reductionistic, but there are two basic ways that theologians do theology, okay? They do what's called systematic theology, and they do biblical theology. A little overview. Systematic theology is a discipline that tries to cull theological information from all over the Bible about any particular topic, and then summarize it in nice little packages, right? So what do you think about God, about Jesus, about man, about sin, about church, about the end times, right? You read the Bible, you pull from all over the place, and you think you have a picture of what it says, and then I try to give it to you in a paragraph, maybe in an entire chapter, maybe in an entire book, but I'm trying to systematize doctrine. Then there's biblical theology. Biblical theology seeks to understand doctrine as it unfolds as part of the grand narrative of Scripture. Biblical theology seeks to understand doctrine in the form of story. 
That is, it traces the doctrinal themes that we find in the Bible from the very beginning, from Genesis, all the way to the end in Revelation. An example of that might be something like a theology of God's presence. In the garden, God walked with Adam and Eve. He was present with them. Sin caused Adam and Eve to be removed from the garden and therefore from God's presence. Then, when God came back to the nation of Israel that he had created, he dwelt with them in the form of a pillar and a, a fire and smoke and cloud. And then he gave them a tabernacle. And that's like God's presence going with them on a little road show, right? And then the temple was built. And God's presence dwelt with his people in the promised land, in the temple. Well, then after that, God's people were exiled from the land. Because of their sin, they were removed from the presence of God. John, the beginning of the Gospel of John begins with Jesus coming down and dwelling with us. God himself making his presence among us in the person of Jesus, in human flesh. And then Jesus dies to purchase the church. And then the church is the body of Christ. In the church, we have fellowship with God as we have fellowship with one another. But that's insufficient. And so the great promise of the gospel is not only that we're saved from our sins, but one day we will be reintroduced to the garden. But not like the old garden, a newer and better garden where we will dwell with the presence of God forever and ever and ever. Now, do you see what I did there? I, I walked from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end of the Bible following a narrative arc to understand doctrine. That would be very different if I just kind of put it together and summarized it for you in lecture form. What I just did was biblical theology. Now, that's one way of doing biblical theology. Another way of doing biblical theology is looking at the entire story of salvation. So instead of looking at one tiny piece of doctrine, like atonement or the presence of God, we just say, what is the main point of this entire book? And there is a main point. And that's what we're going to be doing this morning. Last week's sermon on the gospel, where we did God, man, Christ response, that was kind of like us as a church through a sermon doing systematic theology. This week, in this sermon, we're going to see biblical theology in action as we walk through the story of redemption. So let me pray, and then we will dive in. Father God, Incline our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes, be with us in a special way. Help us to be captured by the story of your love and grace. Amen. Chapter 1, creation. Perhaps the most amazing part of this story is found right at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1.1. This is the greatest possible display of power that has ever happened in the history of the universe. There was nothing, and then there was something. And this something came into existence by God and his power, by the author of our story putting his pen to the proverbial paper and beginning to write. And as is so often the case with every great story, the story of earth begins with world building. The author separates water from land and land from sky and he puts birds into the air and fish into the sea and 
grass onto the field, and then he puts beasts to walk over the grass. And then finally, at the apex of the creation narrative, God creates you, me, us, human beings. The author of the story creates a very good world, and he places us in the middle of it, and he tells us to enjoy all the fruits that he can give us. Every good thing that the author can imagine, he has placed here in this beautiful garden city, and he says, take, enjoy, receive. The author communed with his characters as they walked together in this beautiful garden city of Eden, and they had perfect peace and harmony. Now, as glorious as this is, and friends, we can't even begin to understand how glorious it is. C.S. Lewis tried to capture this in his famous space trilogy. He tried to put some human beings on a faraway planet, Mars, not that far away, uh, tried to put them on a planet and recreate the Garden of Eden, what that glory must have been like. And you can just tell he did the best that he could, but we just can't even wrap our minds around what that must have been like. But as glorious as this would have been, it, it would not be much of a story if we ended here. You see, all the characters thus far are protagonists, right? You remember ninth grade English? They're the good guys. There's no conflict, and conflict is usually what drives the story forward. And if there's no conflict, then there's no resolution. And resolution of conflict is what really brings great joy and satisfaction at the end of the story. So if we stopped here, the story would be nothing but princes and damsels, but no dragons. And every good story needs a dragon. Chapter 2, The Fall. Enter the antagonist, the bad guy, the villain. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? Which, by the way, God did not say. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. The serpent replied, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, this serpent, the antagonist, the villain, we're not told much about him. Later in the story, we'll find out that he is, in fact, a dragon. But we're not told much about him because, really, he's utterly undeserving of our attention. But here in the beginning of the story, we see that this villain, he seems to have one purpose, and one purpose only, to turn the beautiful, glorious garden into a howling wilderness. And he succeeds. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So here we see the king and the queen created to rule over this garden paradise. We see them fall from glory, fall into sin. They are cursed. They're removed from the garden and from the presence of the Lord. Shame abounds. Sin curses the dust of the earth and death takes over the world. All is bleak. 
Everything cursed. Paradise is lost. But even here, in the black abyss of the fall, there is what every good story has to have, a foreshadow. A promise that light will one day shine again out of the darkness. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This, friends, even as the curse takes place, is the first promise of redemption. And oh, isn't it cryptic? Isn't it cryptic? What does it all mean? Bruising your heel, crushing the head of the serpent. As is the case with so many good stories, you have to wait until the end to find out how amazing, how much genius is really present here at the beginning of the story. Now, most Christians, we tend to think about the fall as a sort of one-time event, you know, the capital F fall, if you will. And that's, that's true. That is what happened with Adam and Eve. It was the big one. But as you read the rest of the story, you see that there's a cycle of falls over and over and over again. All the sons of Adam and all the daughters of Eve, they make the same mistakes that their parents made. Cain kills Abel. Abraham is a liar and a coward twice over. Moses is a murderer, the nation of Israel, who comes to represent the new Adam, the new son of God. The nation of Israel, like Adam, falls in sin, not once, but over and over and over again. As you read the events after the fall, sin seems to be growing throughout the world like yeast working its way through a batch of dough. We read Genesis 6-5, which tells us how bad things get. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You can kind of develop your whole doctrine of anthropology off of that one verse alone. Death didn't take over this garden city all at once, of course. Death follows sin, and as the sons of Adam grow in their sinfulness, this beautiful garden is transformed into a howling wilderness haunted by jackals and ogres and every kind of scary creature imaginable. There is no sunshine in this land. There's only winter. The garden has become a wilderness. Chapter 3, Redemption. The best stories find a way, somehow, some way. They always find a way to keep us in tension throughout. They keep us on the edges of our seats, wondering what's going to happen next. Will the good guy win? Will the bad guy win? Who knows? Now, as this story of salvation unfolds throughout the pages of Scripture, season after season, age after age, the people of God seem to be left wondering if perhaps the dragon might win. We're tempted to fear that the damsel might forever remain in distress. We wonder if the king might remain forever in his faraway castle, unmoved by the misery and suffering of his subjects in this decaying kingdom. We're, we're wondering if the author will ever lead his story towards a happily ever after. But the author of the story, and by the way, Yahweh is his name, is very good to remind his characters 
throughout the story, over and over again, about his promise to slay the dragon, to crush the serpent's head, he reminds them that one day salvation would come to this land. The sons of Adam and Eve, the generations of characters to develop throughout the story, they tend to forget the promise, they tend to misunderstand the promise, they're inclined to doubt the promise, they believe in other promises that could never be kept. But Yahweh, throughout the story, never lets his promise be forgotten. One day, perhaps when it was least expected, the serpent crusher came. But he came in the most unexpected way. You think about the nature of a serpent crusher, a, a dragon slayer. Wouldn't you expect him to be, you know, just in the garb of a warrior? Wouldn't you expect him to be arrayed like a king? But the serpent crusher comes when a baby is born. And this baby grows into a child, and this child grows into a man. And many believe that this man was the one to fulfill the ancient promise, to crush the head of the serpent, to restore the garden city. Now this man was called Jesus, and as the story of his life was written, it became clear to all that he was no ordinary man. Some suspected him of being from heaven, and it seemed like this Jesus, it seemed like he was more like the author of the story than a character within it. He seemed to be writing the story even as he lived in it. It seemed to many that the story was about to climax in the life and ministry of this Jesus who would rescue the world from the penalty of sin. But then it all came crashing down. In an instant, it was over. The most terrible anti-climax of any story that has ever been told, this supposed snake crusher, the supposed God-man, the greatest protagonist of the greatest story ever, dies. Put to death by the creation of his own pen, by the characters of his own story. His death is not an honorable one. It's a death on a cross, a criminal's death, a slave's death. The protagonist doesn't just die. He dies in spectacular fashion, in agony, in shame. He dies out in the wilderness, held in utter contempt, despised, abandoned. He who knew no sin became sin. He who was life itself suffered death under the curse of the transgressions of his characters. And then the longest three days that the world has ever known. For three days, everyone, everyone was certain that the story was over. Hope was lost. The protagonist failed. Flowers would never bloom again in the kingdom. The promise is unfulfilled. The best stories, they really tend to catch us off guard. We all love to tell about a story that 
the way it ended, we never saw it coming. We couldn't have possibly imagined that the author would do it that way. The best stories surprise us. You know, they're not the stories where the good guy wins. They're the stories where the good guy wins in a way that we never thought he possibly could. And friends, this story is no different. On the third day, Jesus rose from the grave victorious, defeating sin and Satan and death, putting them to open shame, glorying over them, gloating over them in his victory. When he rose from the grave, the victory chant of heaven and earth bellowed out into the universe. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And friends, who could have seen it coming? Who could have seen it coming that the dragon would be slayed not by the sword of the great prince, but by his sacrificial death? Who could have imagined that the prince would die at the hand of the dragon and would therefore slay the dragon in his death? Who could have known that the protagonist of the story would have to die in order to restore us to the garden city? At the precise moment that it seemed without a doubt that the ancient promise had failed, That was the exact moment when the promise was fulfilled. The price for sin was paid. The people of God were ransomed. Life was restored to the kingdom. The head of the serpent was crushed. Who knew that the story was about the suffering servant after all? Chapter 4, Restoration. You'll have to excuse me, it's allergy season. And for those who are going to listen to this later, that's a bummer. In uh, chapter 3, we saw that the promise that was made at the beginning of the story was indeed a promise kept. But uh, here's a delineation that needs to be made. A promise kept is not the same thing as a promise that has been completely fulfilled. I can promise... Uh, fidelity to my wife for our entire lives, and I have, and I've done that up to this point, but that promise won't be fully realized until both of our lives have passed. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that accomplished all that was needed in order to fulfill the ancient promise of salvation, but the complete fulfillment was not immediate. And here in chapter 4, the chapter of restoration, we find how that promise is fulfilled. Not immediately, but, but gradually. You see, the kingdom of God, the garden city, the renewal of all things, it doesn't just erupt onto the scene in a single moment. The ice of the old kingdom must thaw. The flowers need time to bud and to bloom once again. The jackals must be driven into the outer darkness. The kingdom grows less like kudzu and more like a tiny seed that's planted and nurtured and over a very, very long time grows into a mighty oak. Jesus was the seed of heaven. And friends, he is even now growing his kingdom into a mighty redwood. 
But who but he knows exactly how far along this tree has developed? Who knows whether this kingdom that he is building is a seedling or a sapling or a more mature adult tree? We don't know. He knows. A good author doesn't include everything that he could in the story as he writes it. A good author knows that it's just as important to leave certain things out. But what we do know, because the author has told us and told us in magnificent fashion, is exactly how this story will end. He has told us about the great restoration that awaits us, even as we now still live one foot in the Garden City, one foot in the wilderness. Listen to the Apostle John tell us how the story ends. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you should know that uh, we are all here together today on this Sunday morning, this Lord's Day, because we long for that day when all things will be made new. This is our great hope. This is our only hope. We stir one another up to love and good works so that we can all see this day together. If you're here this morning and you, and you don't know God and all this seems very strange to you, I wonder what is your hope? Do you imagine a day where every tear will be wiped away? If so, how? You think technology will accomplish that for you? Friends, can't you see that technology has made us more anxious, more fearful than we have ever been before in the history of humanity? Haven't you seen the way that it fails us over and over again? How we always think that new things will come along that will make this place feel like heaven, only to find out that it's more like hell than we ever knew? What is your vision of utopia? How do you imagine that you will arrive there? When you close your eyes, what do you imagine will happen when you open them again? For Christians, we press on even in the midst of the brokenness of this world as we are affected by our own sin and by the sin of others, as we endure the pain and suffering of this life that led philosophers like Albert Camus to say the bravest thing you can do is avoid the suffering and kill yourself. The reason why we don't do that and we press on is because we know that a day is coming where this vast wilderness will be swallowed up 
by green grass in lush meadows in the glory of the sun. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, speaking of that day, says, The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And friends, don't we need that healing? Don't we need that sun to shine down on us? Well, if you are in Christ, you should know that you will one day feel that springtime sun on your shoulders. When we think about that day, we imagine that it will be the final page in the story of our lives. But I'm not so sure that's, that's right. I'm not so sure that that's the right way to think about that last day. At the end of C.S. Lewis's uh, Narnia series, he says something that I think is instructive for us here today. Meditating on how that incredible story ends, Lewis tells us that the final day will really be just the beginning of the real story. Listen to what he says. We can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after, but for them it was really just the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Friends, Christianity is not one myth among many. Christianity is the one true myth that all other false myths are pointing to, aspiring to, reaching out and trying to grasp. This story that you have in your phones or in your books, this story is true, and you are living in it. You are part of the greatest story ever told. Consider the fact that God has written himself into the story, and he's communicating with you even as he writes it. Even today, as I speak God's word to you, the author of the story is talking to you. And he has told you here in this book, he has told you the end from the beginning. And through his son, he has secured for you a happily ever after. If you will receive it. You see, friends, this story is a very peculiar one. It's unique. It's perhaps the only story ever written where the author hands you his pen. And in so doing, he allows you to have a hand in writing the end of your own story. So what do you want? Do you want to remain in the howling wilderness of your sins forever? Or do you want to return to the Garden City? And enjoy your happily ever after. Let's pray. Father God, you have opened our eyes and our hearts. You've helped us to see not all things that are true, but that they're also beautiful and good. You've given us every good thing this morning, God. And so we respond to you now together with one heart and one voice in the fullness of praise. Hallelujah. Amen.